Hey everyone, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really love talking about the topics we cover, and it is our hope that these conversations will be helpful to Christ Church. So thank you for listening. It's very encouraging to us. Today's conversation is all about how you can be right with God. This is a topic that I chose because I think it's just so important. I see the whole red pill movement and Jordan Peterson and all that stuff as our culture waking up to our need for law. And compared to the insanity of critical theory and transgender ideology and all that rot, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life sounds just wonderful. It sounds positively sane. But as Pastor Max points out in the conversation, the law that Jordan Peterson or the law that anyone else teaches cannot save you. And so there are so many people today who are benefiting from the laws of Jordan Peterson or some other guru online and who still fall short of God's law. Scripture teaches that we are saved by grace through faith. And so we get into what it means to have Christian faith. I'm very excited about this episode. I hope you enjoy it. My guests today are pastors Tim Bailey and Max Carell. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. Well, I am back in the studio today with Tim Bailey. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing well, Lucas. How are you, dear brother? I'm doing very well. The weather has turned. Uh, you and I had a delightful time riding some lawnmowers yesterday. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Enjoying the beautiful weather. And on my right, I've got Pastor Max. How are you doing, Max? Very well, thank you. How are you, Lucas? I'm well. Did you get a chance to ride a lawnmower yesterday? I did, in fact, ride the lawnmower yesterday. <laughs> do you and enjoy? Do you enjoy riding a lawnmower? I didn't ride those... Uh, Cadillac lawnmowers <laughs> that you that we were got riding. at the church. I, oh, come on, Max! Tell them that you have. I rode. I rode the steel plate. <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, you have the Cadillac, the Rolls Royce of ZTRs. Tell them it may it may be the the company that makes the Rolls Royce, but the model I have is not the Rolls Royce. <laughs> well, but them. I'm very thankful for it. Tell them the name. It's uh, Skag. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but weren't you riding Ferris? Can we get a it was commercial a promotional plug right now for <laughs> It was the church's Ferris. <laughs> All right, a little jealousy going on here. Um, so today I wanted to talk about uh, justification. And I've been talking with Tim about justification, trying to convince him to be willing to do an episode. Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. I mean, he's... So actually, Tim has uh, taught a class at our pastor's college on justification using the the book by James Buchanan, The Doctrine of Justification, as your textbook, essentially. Is that is that yeah, right? number of times. number of times. So he's, you know, thought a lot about this topic, and of course, he's happy to talk about it, but it's been something that has really been burning in my mind, and so I'm, I'm excited about talking about it today. So where did it come from for me? Well, it's kind of a, a, a personal a personal journey. Uh, so earlier this year in January, we have a very dear friend of ours who passed away. Uh, his name was uh, Bob Kaplowitz, and he was a Jewish man who had come to know the Lord, come to have, have faith in Jesus Christ when he was in his early 20s. And he was a delightful man. And one of the most amazingly delightful things about him 
is that despite all the challenges he had in life, and of, and of course, if you don't know who he was, he he was handicapped. He uh, was born with cerebral palsy, and so he was a quadriplegic and had to have other people help him do absolutely everything. But his mind was very much intact, and one of the most delightful things about him was his humor. Uh, he ha- He retained an amazingly incisive, uh, witty Jewish humor that to his dying day he, he had and uh, would pull out all the time. Um, very, very delightful thing about him. And so as I was thinking about Bob and I don't know, just, just thinking about him, I came across a book about Jewish humor. Um, or maybe somebody recommended it to me, I don't know. It's by a guy named Joseph Telushkin who is a practicing uh, Jew and has written a number of books. And so I read the book, I thought it was delightful. And then I went on to read another book by Rabbi Joseph Telushkin that was kind of an, uh, uh, an introduction to Jewishness. I forget the precise title, but it was really interesting to me. And one of the things that he pointed out is that all modern day practicing Jews are heirs of the Pharisees. And that really... Uh, stuck out to me. It was really surprising to me. Because, of course, in our connotation in a Christian nation, even the word Pharisee has a pejorative meaning to it. And so, I, you know, read a little bit about this, and what I learned is that the Pharisees were actually the ones, the sect that you might say, at the time of Christ, that he was theologically or maybe religiously closest to, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird to say, but the, you know, of the Jewish sects available, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he was close to them. And that, in fact, the, the Pharisees were the ones that were responsible for keeping a lot of Jewish practice alive during the times of the exile. And, and during the times when, in particular, the temple, when there was no temple, and so they they had a habit of taking scripture, the Bible, and applying it, and, so, and trying to figure out how to apply it in ways that uh, that were applicable to people who were in Babylon or or whatever. So so that's a little bit of the background, learning a little bit about the Pharisees. And you know, when I went through the pastors' college years ago, we actually didn't read the Doctrine of Justification by by James Buchanan at the time. And I, it's been on my list to read for a very long time. I've wanted to read it. And I started reading it this year, and I made a commitment that I'm going to read it this year. And I... Um, no, but say why it is that that has to be a commitment. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, long, it's a big book. It's an old book. And... It's hard to read. It's hard to read. Yeah, it's hard to read. It takes some work. It takes some work. And so I just want to read a couple things uh, here to get us started early in the book, in the chapter on the apostolic age. So he starts the book by talking about the doctrine of justification through the ages in the Old Testament, and then lecture two is the apostolic age. And he says here, in the New Testament, our Lord speaks of the Pharisees as men who, quote, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, unquote. And Paul ascribes their rejection of the gospel to their being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. Their grand error, therefore, consisted in self-righteousness, and this error implied defective views both of the spiritual requirements of the law, by which is the knowledge of sin, and also of the free promise of grace, by which is the knowledge of salvation. 
So I've, I've got more to read from, but I want to stop there just for a second to ask you, Tim, when he's saying here, the spiritual requirements of the law, what, what does that mean? What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that all through the Old Testament, um, you will find a distinction between circumcised foreskins and circumcised hearts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just recently was in, I think it was Daniel, I might be wrong on that. And there that was referred to, it also referred to some parallel construction that emphasized that distinction. And, you know, anybody who's a pastor knows that there are many people who depend on formalism and ritual, liturgy, and the liturgies and rituals change. They can be very evangelical. They can be very Roman Catholic. I remember Mm. my dad writing an article probably 40, 45 years ago now where he said that evangelicals replaced faith and infant baptism saving their children to faith and their children praying the sinner's prayer Mm. saving them. Mm -hmm. And so you can have... You know, you can deconstruct the historic liturgies, the historic understanding of the sacraments. We've seen that with Pado Communion today where, you know, they they have really changed how we approach the Lord's table. But in the end, every pastor who knows God and who is looking for God's approval of his ministry knows how tempting it is to look at people who observe our traditions today, Mm -hmm. traditions change, our traditions today, whatever they are, and depend upon that for their assurance of salvation rather than their humble dependence on the blood of Christ, Mm. okay? In other words, their faith. Mm -hmm. Their faith, which is a gift from God, which always issues in a life of repentance, as Luther says in the very first of the 95 Theses. Mm. And so when he's talking here about... Spirituality. Yeah, when he's talking here about the issue of God's righteousness, uh, their rejection of the gospel to their, quote, being ignorant of God's righteousness, he's quoting the Apostle Paul there, Mm -hmm. and that their grand error consists in self-righteousness. And that this is a defective view of the spiritual requirements of the law. Well, what he's saying is that you can't work the system. Mm. It is not a system. It is a person I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep me. Okay, that's interesting because I, that's not what I assumed was the case. When I read spiritual requirements of the law, you know, I thought of Jesus pointing out in the Sermon on the Mount, you heard it said don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully, that you have committed adultery. Am I, am I misunderstanding that? No, no, that? no, no. That is the spiritual requirements okay. of the law. I mean, that's a whole exposition of the spiritual requirements of the law. But you have to ask yourself, is that new with the New Testament? Or mm. is that permeate Scripture? The minute it permeates Scripture, then you understand the nature of the law as a schoolmaster to Christ. Mm -hmm. Because then you realize that anybody who thought that he could keep the law had no understanding of God's holiness, no understanding of the law, which which the laws are simply a reflection of the character, the perfections of God, and no understanding of how God can be a God who forgives sin when they don't need to be forgiven. That's why Jesus said, I haven't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I'm sorry that it appears I'm not. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand. Well, this, this whole question 
of law and gospel. I, I don't know how to describe it other than to say it's like it has just exploded. This is why I keep bringing it up to you <laughs> wanting to talk about it. It's exploded in front of me. One of the reasons really is because as I was reading this book about you know Jewishness, it just, and you know, we're talking about spiritual crimes of the law, but this book of about Jewishness by this Rabbi Telushkin, he kept hammering away at, at, you know, what the Jews have given to the world is ethical monotheism. In other words, mm-hmm. law, law, law. He keeps hammering away at this. And there were all kinds of things in it, in this book, where he indicates that, oh, like, like he wrote approvingly of a certain group of Jews who would go and literally just practically door to door trying to get people to wear what he referred to as tefillin, which is the um, phylacteries. That's, mm-hmm. I guess, the Jewish or Hebrew w- word for phylacteries is tefillin. And and just even taking that step is like a, a positive thing. And so just, just hammering away at the law. And so it's like everywhere I look, I see law and gospel demands. Now, we're going we're gonna to keep going. We'll get more into that in a second. And so, I really like what you said, Tim, because what you immediately did is, I forget exactly how you put it, but you pointed us back to the Old Testament and said, either the spirituality of the law is all throughout Scripture, or maybe you didn't say either or. Uh, how did you put well, that? Well, yeah, it really is either or, and you'll find that when you read commentaries on the on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can be separated into those who say that this is... Uh, this is a complete, because Jesus says, you have heard it said unto you, but I say unto you. And so there is that uh, seesaw that either this or this, even to how Jesus teaches the law. Mm. But you have to ask whether he's really putting himself in opposition to the Old Testament law Mm. or whether he's putting himself in opposition to the Pharisees. To the Pharisees. That's right. If you read Buchanan on justification, you'll find that right at the beginning, he does make it very clear that the gospel of the New Testament is the gospel of the Old Testament. That's exactly right. And what we have to say at the beginning of this discussion is all of us who have any background in evangelicalism have been taught that the Old Testament, people were saved by obedience, but mm. the New Testament, they're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and by grace. And that the Old Testament God was severe, the New Testament God, Jesus, is nice, real nice. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that this is the product of the overwhelmingly dispensationalist nature. Mm -hmm. And you may not know the word dispensationalist, but if you don't know it, that means you are one. Mm-hmm. And I'm making a joke, <laughs> sort yeah. of. Well, but yeah. the milk you nurse from your mother's breast—if you grew up in any sort of evangelical family, no matter the denomination or the tradition—yep—is dispensationalist, which says that the Old Testament was about flesh and land. Mm-hmm. The New Testament is about spirit and truth and grace. Mm-hmm. And so, at the beginning of this book, writing what, almost two centuries ago, right? Or was it the late 1800s? Born in 1804. Okay, so writing mid-century, so over 150, 70 years ago now, Mm -hmm. uh, he just says, look, you guys have to get it into your brains. There was not one method of salvation in the Old Testament, another for the New. Mm -hmm. I only say that because people have to understand as they listen to this discussion that it's very likely they have this false dichotomy between the Old and New Testament, particularly about the use of the law in the Old and New Testament, 
and the necessity of faith. And I think that's essential for you to point out because I think if you begin as I did, so I grew up in that milieu as well, and if you learn as I have more recently of the similarities actually that uh, we have between the Pharisees, between what we believe in the Pharisees. So if I could read a little bit, it says, in the way of obedience, they, meaning the Pharisees, required such works as these, repentance, and I'm thinking to myself, whoa, they required repentance? Like, I don't know why I wouldn't have thought that about the Pharisees, but I've always thought the Pharisees, you know, again, it's a pejorative word, and you think they're just, I don't know, I don't know what you think, but it's surprising to me. Or a ter- so they, they they require repentance or a turning to God, which was supposed to have such an efficacy as to raise the penitent in some respects, even above the innocent. Uh, prayer, I'm thinking again, well, I, I believe in prayer, you know, that sounds similar, which was supposed to be expiat- expiatory and meritorious, <laughs> sorry for the big words, eventually when it included confession of sin and was accompanied with outward signs of grief and humiliation. Especially when it included confession oh, sorry. of sin. Yes, thank you. Alms giving, so that's uh, given to the poor. For he that ha- that giveth to the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and makes God his debtor. The diligent use of ceremonial observances. So then, skipping down a little, they they ascribed a certain efficacy to the due observance of morning and evening sacrifice, and especially to the services of the great day of atonement. And I'm thinking again, atonement, like they they understood atonement, but chiefly it would seem because they were offered in obedience to the divine law and were, on that account, acceptable to God. It was not the sacrifice that secured the acceptance of the worshiper, but rather the obedience of the worshiper that secured the acceptance of the sacrifice. Faith was required as one of the chief means of meriting eternal life. And again, I'm, my, my brain is exploding here, because I'm thinking, well, duh, they knew the Old... Now I'm realizing, of course, the Pharisees read the Old Testament, and it says the just shall live by faith. They knew that. But, but he goes on here. Faith was, faith was required as one of the chief means of meriting eternal life, for they knew from their own scriptures that the just shall live by faith. But by faith, they meant a meritorious virtue, which consisted in acknowledging the divine authority of the law and trusting in God without reference to the promised Messiah, at least as a suffering and atoning redeemer. The only Messiah whom they now expected was a human and temporal deliverer, not a divine and spiritual savior. And thus their whole salvation was left to depend on their observance of the law of Moses and their trust in the general mercy of God. I I think it's very easy for us as Christians because we, we we carry with us all kinds of bad beliefs about justification. I start learning about this and I'm thinking like, whoa, what's the difference between me and a Pharisee? Where are we actually different? Mm -hmm. And we have no defenses coming out of a lawless time. And here again, I'm, I'm going to come back to this a lot, but exploding in front of me, law and gospel. We are in a lawless time, and there's all kinds of people that are waking up to the fact that we as a society and a culture will die if we continue to be lawless. This, we're, we're on a path of self-destruction. Even pagans see that we're on a path of self-destruction. And so Christians who are, are lawless are sitting ducks for a false and uh, legalistic view of justification. I was thinking as you were talking about the Pharisees, and I was thinking, what did they believe about their own depravity? 
Mm, yeah. Because I think that has bearing on this. I've been I've been thinking about this from the perspective of not being a dispensationalist, but from the perspective of being a Wesleyan Arminian. Mm. Because that was the tradition. I grew up, I got the double whammy. I was the dispensationalist and the Wesleyan <laughs> Arminian. <clears throat> oh, wow. And as you think about, as I think about this, uh, one of the things that jumps out at me in the Sermon on the Mount because when you brought that up earlier, I would just written it down. One of the things that jumped out about me, Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, uh-huh. is the reality of the Pharisees believed that they actually could do something. They, mm-hmm. they actually believed they were capable mm-hmm. of achieving something. And so if you're an Arminian or if you're a Wesleyan Arminian, you believe that you're capable. Mm-hmm. And you believe that in part because uh, you are absent a a view of total depravity Hmm. and so you actually believe you can do it Mm -hmm. or if you're a roman catholic Mm -hmm. oddly enough you believe that you can do something some of them can get so far that they actually accrue merit so open that up a little bit more what keeps you from falling into that error well one thing is depravity okay uh, what do you looking, mean by that? What well, is, what I is... grew up in a tradition where I thought I could do it. Hmm. And there came a day when I realized by God's grace, by his mercy, I just, my eyes opened up and I realized I can't do it. Hmm. I can't. I can't achieve this. I can't. I can't sustain this. I can't in my power, you know, and if I were a Pharisee, I don't, but many people that I knew said they were doing it. Hmm. And Jesus was around people who said they were doing it. Hmm. They said they were keeping it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were just living, and he called them whitewashed tombs. Hmm. He said, You guys are just like tombs that are whitewashed. Outwards, you have this kind of look, but inwards, you're inside, you're full of this. And the Sermon on the Mount hearkens to that. You have heard it said, Oh, yeah. I don't commit adultery. Yeah. I have never plowed with someone else's wife in mm-hmm. in an adulterous relationship, right? Mm-hmm. But then he says, but I say to you, and he basically takes the reality of the heart mm. and he opens it all up. And suddenly you realize, well, wait a minute, even though I don't smoke and I don't drink and I don't go to movies and I don't commit adultery, I don't commit adultery and I pray my prayers and I wear my phylacteries and I, you know, you can just take all these things and I go to mass as many times and I, and I buy candles and I, whatever you do, Mm -hmm, right. mm -hmm. He just takes all of these things and he says, (laughs) guess what? It's the inside of you that's the problem. It's mm. way inside. It goes down to the to the bone, right down into the marrow of the bone is the reality of it. Let me ask you a question. Are Reformed evangelicals keeping the law today? You say that you're susceptible to being a Pharisee, and certainly you would say that that reform theology, the reform church, the reform hermeneutic, the reform confessions, that all of these things are very easy to displace faith Mm -hmm. and to redefine it. And that you look at what he says about the Pharisees, which of course is 
his representation of the Pharisees, which I've tried to say to you. In other words, what a man reports today, 2,000 years later, is what the Pharisees really believed when that man has been raised in Christendom Mm -hmm. and certainly is attuned to what Christendom reports as the Pharisees then and certainly wanting to defend the Pharisees then against what Christendom. In other words, you know, the, the whole thing is anachronistic. Yes. But nevertheless, do you see that the Reformed Church, the most conservative part of the Reformed Church today, keeps God's law. What mm-hmm. would you say? Uh, no. Say yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay. Do they keep God's law about bloodshed? Mm. Do they keep God's law about effeminacy and homosexuality? No. In what way do they not keep? Let's take effeminacy and homosexuality. In what way do they not keep it? What's the essence of it? Well, it's the effeminacy. Yeah, but it, what it really is is denying the spirituality mm. of the law. Right. Because what they do is they say, well, we won't copulate with each other, but we'll have a covenant relationship. We'll have the same adopted child. We'll live in the same house together. We'll go to the same church. We're all on the same page with the most conservative Reformed Christians, but we have this little glitch. What is the little glitch? Well, the little glitch is their hearts. They're desperately clinging to the gay aesthetic on many, many levels. Okay. And aesthetics gets to your heart. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. And so the real issue is that the PCA has decided they're content with the outside of the cup being clean. Yes. And if people will make a show of keeping the outside of the cup clean, there's no condemnation there's no discipline there's no love for them mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. happy to be hypocrites together uh, it made me think of what would jesus say at this point and th- tell me if this doesn't work but you have heard it said i do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but i say to you what <laughs> Do you well, see what I'm saying? You get in the PCA this idea of no, we don't ordain women, and no, yeah. we don't ordain women, and we. But I say to you, what? Yeah. And what do they deny in the PCA? What do the Reformed churches deny? They deny manhood and womanhood at all. Right, the fundamental. They have and, denied and, it at its core, at its yeah. base, at its heart. But I mean, David, they would absolutely gnash their teeth at you. Well, of course they would. But it's true. It is true. Yeah. It is true. That and we're not attacking the PCA. The OPC is the same. Yeah, I, I would I said I, that, certainly the CRC is the change. I would say, having spoken at one of their classes meetings, that many men in the URC are the same. They absolutely refuse in their pastoral care and preaching to make a distinction between the spiritual and, shall I say, the objective content of the law between a a cup that's clean on the outside and filthy on the inside and a clean that's clean on the inside and therefore the outside is clean. Mm. And it's because we do not believe in the biblical doctrine of justification because you can't believe in the biblical doctrine of justification if you're going around trying to make it easier for people to be Christians, both before profession and after profession. I just got done writing about a certain, the most famous preacher of of my lifetime. 
And he just consistently undercuts the spirituality of the law and everything he does. And yet he's seen to be the best evangelist we've had over the last 40 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And he, what he's done is cheapened the spirituality of the law. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do consistently with all things sexual, because mm-hmm. that's where the most intense attack upon God's character is, is in sexuality, his fatherhood, his distinction between men and women. And so we're just constantly trying to eviscerate it of any substantive content. You know, the doctrine of sexuality in the PCA and other reformed churches today is the unbearable lightness of being. Mm-hmm. It just becomes ever lighter. But what I'm, what I'm seeing is that you know, I think I'm thinking particularly of young men, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of man who's going to be tempted by the effeminacy of the PCA and the revoice movement, but then there's a whole red pill movement, right? And there's, you know, we just, uh, Hillsdale just had their graduation. Mm-hmm. They had Jordan Peterson and, you know, we were, I was talking to my nephews and you were in the room, Tim. And I think one of the comments was, I've never heard a guy say that he wasn't sure that heaven is real, but he is sure that hell is real. <laughs> but uh, but the sort of, and, and, and Jordan Peterson has even released books that are literally like 10 rules for life or whatever. So, so again, ex- this explosion yeah, of but law, I think, right? Yeah, but, but that's a use of the law. And you're conflating two things. One has to do with the law and its ability to save us. Mm-hmm. The other one has to do with the law and its re- ability to constrain us. And Jordan Peterson is always hovering around the constraint side of the law because he has good arguments from the way the world falls into pieces mm-hmm. on the lack of constraint of the law. Well but said. he doesn't have Very anything well to do with the fact that the law cannot save us. It actually will condemn us because it will cause us to know that we are absolutely without excuse. We're but, sinful. But see, this is this is the thing that I want to get at, I think, though, because there's a lot of young men who are not seeing what's going on because they see Jordan Peterson and they think, wow, yes, he makes way more sense than But because I think it's because all they're thinking about is restraint. They're thinking about the world and their rights and the power and me being a man and I won't be able to and this and that and the other thing and the restraint of the world around them. And they're saying, nobody's practicing restraint. And I love Jordan Peterson because he's saying we need restraint. Right. Clean your room, you know. But they can't approach Jordan Peterson biblically through Christ because they don't have the concept of the law that Jesus well, was talking let, let, about. Let me, with let the, me ask you a question. Uh, let me put the question another way. Isn't Jordan Peterson offering me everything that I need? No. Why not? Because he's not offering you anything to do with being reconciled to God. He's only offering you a way to be to to have your best life now. Mm. That's it. You know, we're we're all going to have a better job, and we're going to have. I'll be able to have my prerequisites, and I, I I I'd put it that that's a good way to put it. But I I think I want to add another thing, and that is, again, coming back to the law, the law. I would say to the person who asked that question to me, I would say, well, okay, you got a law from Jordan Peterson, and that's great. You're making your bed now. That's good. I'm glad for that. But whose law should you actually be concerned about? And I think that that that's the fundamental thing. Well, it is. Behind it, it is. There is is who, who brought the law. 
yeah, what, the law, what the law presents to us, what the law of the Bible presents to us is the character of God himself. That's, that's exactly right. And then there is the fact of the matter that once that law is, and it is known, uh-huh. okay, once that law is and it is known, then what does it do? Well, it, one of the things that it does for, cult, for societies is that it restrains lawlessness, yep, yep. right? And for the good of people, it restrains in societies. But now we've we've left the part of it being the character of God and well, our responsibility to the character of God and our relationship to the character of God. We've left that completely behind, and now it's all just about Restraint. Restraint. Listen, let me push back on this a little bit and say that I was there in the room with you with these uh, two students at Hillsdale. And I don't know if it was while you were there or not. I suspect it was said after you left. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong. I, I got up and left shortly after that, I think. Yeah. So. And what was said was that Jordan Peterson was such a joy to this young man because he has spent so much time around christians who are charismatic who are you know heaving bosom yeah you know (laughs) just all things uh matronly towards the world that that's the highest aspiration of christian evangelism and witness and he said and there's no reality there's no admission of sin and of brokenness it's just all cheap talk that's spiritual that's graceful that's all this stuff there's no hard edges to anything and then here comes jordan peterson and it's wonderful (laughs) because he speaks the truth even to the point of his own condemnation that he says i'm going to go to hell and I believe in hell, and I don't believe in heaven. All right. Well, of course that's going to be enticing. If Christianity is just simply emotions, it's an emotive and experiential community and not a community of faith and doctrine, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then of course you're not going to have any content to the law other than simple mechanical fulfillment. And, you know, I know the end of the story of that book you're reading. Okay. And and what I'll tell you is that the greatest helpfulness of that book is the fact that it relentlessly distinguishes between the doctrine of infusion and the doctrine of imputation. Okay. So Roman Catholicism. Well, but let's not even call it that. Let's say infusion and imputation, because honestly, the vast majority of Reformed Christians today believe in infusion and not imputation. Okay. So what is it? Let's start there. Well, don't you think that this th- this is the point where depravity comes in, I think? Because in order for you to have infusion, you have to have some substance, you have to have something viable to be fused with, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And imputation indicates that you have nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think that even if you forgot Roman Catholicism and just started with Wesley mm. and and him saying that, yeah, everybody's got something mm-hmm. that w- to work with, right? And then that he is our heritage. Everybody today is a Wesleyan Arminian. Everybody today is so, this. So what's the distinction between infusion and imputation? 
Infusion is the doctrine that we qualify for heaven. Imputation is the doctrine that we never qualify for heaven. Infusion is the doctrine that we can become good enough to deserve heaven. Imputation is the biblical teaching that there is none righteous, no, not one. Mm -hmm. That all our righteousness is as filthy rags, which is Jeremiah, Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so a guy like Jordan Peterson is going to lead men to believe that they can keep the law that is essential to your manhood yep. or essential to you being a rational, logical creature mm -hmm. or essential to you being civilized as we used to mean civilized. And all those things are much more true than what we have in the Reformed Church today, mm -hmm. let alone the Charismatic Church today, let alone Vineyard. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. Um, but they're a bastard child of the faith that rests solely in the imputation to us freely of the foreign, alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I said to these young men, I said, oh, I know why Jordan Peterson is so appealing to you, because it's such a relief to have a man say no mm -hmm. after evangelicalism just shouts relentlessly yes at you with no content to that yes, and certainly no no. Yeah. But Jordan Peterson is a wuss. Now, I choose that word intentionally to shock them right because of course the one thing every man that loves jordan peterson knows is that he's a real man you follow yes i mean he's I a mean, real man you're he, gonna get red pill guys that will disagree with yeah you, yeah but that's a but what is manhood but the absolute masculine determination to face truth as it is Mm. Well, then, of course, they're going to get even madder at me because that's, of course, the very thing that causes them to love him. Mm -hmm. He faces mm. truth relentlessly. He right. says that he isn't sure there's a heaven, but he's sure there's a hell. Right. Now, what more could you ask out of a man? Mm -hmm. Okay, here's the more that I ask out of a man mm -hmm. is that when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, mm. and you will find rest for your souls. A real man says yes and comes. Mm. But a man who can't face the truth of the hopelessness of his wickedness mm -hmm. will not come because he's still intent on protecting his pride. Yeah, his pride. And that's what I kept trying to get across to these guys that Jordan Peterson is a very proud man. Yeah, there's a kind of heroicism that goes along with stoicism. Yeah. You know, it's like, come what may, I'm going to be a tough man. Yeah, and they even, and, you know, these are my grandchildren. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love them. Yeah. But they even had the gall to look at me and say to me that Jordan Peterson is a real McCoy because he hasn't wanted ever to be promoted into the public eye. Uh. And I just started laughing at him. <laughs> I said, are you serious? You actually think that Jordan Peterson has not set his eye on precisely where he's headed, why, and the importance of it. I, you think any man climbs into the catbird seat 
as loudly as Jordan Peterson has done, excoriating all the liberals, lampooning them, yep, okay, yep, yep. and has not made a decision beforehand that that is his, you know, apostolic work? I mean, you really think Jordan Peterson just woke up one day and accidentally found out he was famous and wealthy? Mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. said, well, he's not wealthy. I said, how much do you think he got oh, paid my. to speak at Hillsdale? Yeah, yeah. But of course- that's just like saying that about John MacArthur or about <laughs> Tim Keller or about Mark Driscoll or Tully Tavigian or, you know, oh, no, 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 they're not. A, no, it's just that the world has discovered their brilliance. <laughs> no, 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 no. These men have intentionally gone after fame. Okay. And we're susceptible to this because everybody in the world is talking about how wonderful they are, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And we need to have discernment about the nature of what gets you fame and acceptance and people adulating you. What is it that gets it? It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. George Whitfield was no hero of the sophisticates. Why, why are you saying that? Well, because he preached the gospel. He pre- he- and he preached it with a sharp scalpel. And he preached it publicly. And, you know, people will say, well, did you know that Benjamin Franklin went to hear him? Well, why did they say that? Well, Benjamin Franklin was over in the salons of France, you know, mm. being... Benjamin Franklin was, you know. And so we say that to make the point, well, there was one sophisticate who was very impressed with Benjamin Franklin. With George Whitfield, you mean? I mean, yeah, 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 with George Whitfield. Mm -hmm. And what we have to understand is that the men who get the approval of the world are men who teach the capability of the law. Capability of the law. They're men who take the edge off the doctrine of sexuality. They're men who are fine with women, uh, contraceptive, uh, termination of God's fruitfulness in their bodies, men who get their wives to have abortions. Mm. And these things are rife in the conservative Reformed church, rife. They're everywhere. And so if you go from sexuality to bloodshed, the Reformed world is drowning in the blood of its children. Mm-hmm. But they're drowning in the blood of its children in a way that, again, it's pharisaical. They won't typically go down to have a surgical abortion. They just kill their children while they're trying to implant on their mother's womb with drugs where there's no body left afterwards to speak of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've killed millions of their children just in this country, let alone the billions that have been killed around the world. But. The American College of OB-GYN, as we said in our last podcast, changed the definition of conception to implantation instead of fertilization. And so, pharisaical Christians of a Reformed perspective who are very conservative can blather on about how horrible abortion is. And again, it's just like Revoice. They don't have surgical abortions, Mm. right? But they commit abortion constantly by their method of hormonal birth control. And so it's just like Revoice where I don't copulate. Yep, yep. And this is at the heart of the doctrine of justification because when you talk about the spiritual. Spirituality of the law. Content, the spirituality of the law. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about is that part of God's law, which 
has its foundation in the character of God, mm-hmm. the character of God, yeah, and which addresses our character. Mm. And I'll say one other thing: we, if we are Christians, know that we, as Christians, never keep the law because we are always seeing our motivations. Mm-hmm. And how often can we say? that completely, (laughs) completely our motivation is the glory of God Mm. in anything good we do. And so I tell people in counseling, I say, listen, do not say that nothing you do is good because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit Mm. overruling all the sinful motives and all the twistedness of the depravity, David, that you were talking about. I was going to say to that point, and maybe to to uh, uh, shut the door on Jordan Peterson. Yeah, what interest does Jordan Peterson have in justification? Mm. Eternal. A lot. No, no, no. Well, he does actually. I mean, he has an eternal interest. No, oh, for himself. For himself, yeah, 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 but but what we're talking about is justification yeah, and, the, and the law. It it justification. What interest does he have in it? Everything that Tim just said about about the character of God. Mm-hmm. How does Jordan Peterson, when he's talking about the law, how does he present to who, the listeners the character of God by giving them? The outside of the cup of the law. Yeah, he's not. He's, he's not talking about the character of God. Of he's talking not. about what's that's my best point. for for sort of prima- human pragmatic. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I mean. He's all yeah. about containment. He's yeah. all about the you know just keeping things under under lid uh, the lid on things so that it can so that we can have a nice time in our best lives now. But Jordan Peterson has no interest in justification. Mm-hmm. He does not have an interest mm-hmm. in our souls before God, the holy God. He doesn't well, have an interest in it. you know, in some ways he may have some uh, subliminal, pre-conscious. He <laughs> may, you know, no, seriously, he may have... He may have a lot of biblical truth about the nature of depravity. I think he does. You look at his face... And it is tormented. This is a man who never moves out of angst. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then where, where's the fruit? I, I think that's the right question to ask. Um, <clears throat> that's my point is, I mean, I, I, get, I can grant that, Tim. But he, when, you, when you think about his listeners, they're not going toward let me put that it, issue. Let me put it like this. What I ended up saying to my grandsons is, look, the real man is a man who is going to think so small of himself that he will cling to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's manhood, a man who dis- who absolutely despairs of his own potential morally and spiritually, and therefore has the strength to come to Jesus. Now, I know that sounds weird, has the strength to come to Jesus. Well, what is faith? What well, is it? think, it was the centurion who said, no, you don't need to come to my house, mm-hmm. just say the word. Jesus says, I haven't found that such faith in all of Israel. That was a man's man. Men's men understand God's oh. authority <clears throat> and his power. And they trust God in the most severe dispensations. Yeah. 
in their life. Oh, I love that. Thank and, you. And That's perfect. That Keep talking. requires a kind of strength that is it's very difficult to communicate because a man can be very bulky. He could be, he could build, he could, I don't know what, he could be the best UFC fighter, whatever, and not have the ability to trust God with the dispensations in his life, to have the ability to relate to a woman as his wife. I mean, there are so which is one of the most difficult works terrifying relationships are the most terrifying and difficult thing that we do i think i mean they're if you actually peer into them this is why the people you know the the talk of talking about love is so cheap you know all we need is love right it's so cheap but if you know anything if you've even had a tiny glimpse of what it what you're being commanded to do to love somebody else, you will completely... Can, can, can I describe the moment of my greatest manhood? Yeah. So my greatest manhood came at a time where from when I was 15, I had decided I was going to marry Mary, Mary Lee Taylor as my wife. Uh-huh. And I sent her roses after our first date, a dozen roses with a card that said someday. Yeah. I was firm. Okay. But over the course of the succeeding years, Mary Lee was, uh, shall we say, somewhat frivolous. If you want to listen to her podcast on Warhorn, you can find Mary Lee being interviewed. And so she, I moved out to California to be there when she got there for college. She's going to Westmont and Santa Barbara. And when she came out, she broke up with me. Now, it is impossible for me to tell you the howling pain of that. I'm absolutely serious. Mm-hmm. and the horror of my life from that point on. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go into it more than to say that, but I will tell you that about a year later, she was still broken up with me, but I had come back to God mm-hmm. by his grace, and I realized Mary Lee was an idol. Mm-hmm. She was an idol. Mm-hmm. I was an idolater. Mm-hmm. So in that time period, I went and worked on a farm up in Wisconsin. It was so freeing because I had animals around me. Mm -hmm. And animals will, if you put a nickel in their mouth, they'll give you a nickel's worth of love and attention. (laughs) You know, there's nothing about animals that's gamey. You you rub a a dog's (laughs) belly and- No pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so we milk 50 dairy goats a day and was on a farm on top of a hill in Wisconsin. And all of a sudden- Mary Lee showed up from the West Coast. She came and she came and violated the place of my healing hmm. by her presence. And yet I loved her. Mm-hmm. I adored her. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, she had always intended to marry me. She <laughs> just wanted to have a little fun. <laughs> you know. I mean, that's the truth. Girls just want to have fun, I guess. So she comes up to the farm and we take a walk one night, bad move. Yeah. yeah. And we go down and we're in the barn for a while in the hay. Uh And I know at that moment that if I touch that woman, I have chosen that woman over my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay? 
the flames of hell are everywhere around us, and I know what's going on, mm-hmm. and I have not taken LSD or paper. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And for some reason, by the mercy of God, I had Mary Lee stand up, and we walked out of that barn, mm. and I didn't touch her. She wanted me back in the worst way. Mm-hmm. We went around the side of the barn, then down the driveway, and then we took a walk on the road, tiny, tiny country road. And we walked this way. It was a beautiful night, cold, but clear sky. And then we walked back towards the, the, the farm. And as we walked back to the farm, I remembered all of a sudden that when I was in high school and used to blather on to my mother in the kitchen, which is what (laughs) I did. And I would tell her, I just love Mary Lee. She would always look at me with this disgusted look on her face. And she would say to me, Timothy, you know nothing about love. Don't Mm. tell me you love Mary Lee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was so I'm offended. Mama telling me I didn't love Mary Lee. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I'm walking along this road and I, my mother's voice comes into my ears. And I realize all of a sudden that I love Mary Lee that mm-hmm. night and that it's the first time I've ever loved her. Mm. And then I realize why. I realize that it's because I would rather not have her as my wife, than for her soul to go to hell. Mm. And that if what is required for Mary Lee to come to God and to be saved is that I lose Mary Lee, that's a wonderful bargain. Mm. And I'm overjoyed to have that loss. Now, let's go back to what you were saying about love and manhood. The, the image that I, I think of is Jacob wrestling with God. I think that is the Christian faith. And there is no way to do that without receiving intense, unalterable pain. But that's faith. If you've been helped by this episode, then you won't want to miss the second half of this conversation next week. I hope you'll join us. My name is Lucas Weeks, and the conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Bye for now. 